If you're a guest with us this morning, we have been working our way through uh, the life of David. We've been exploring his life and finding ourselves in it. I think the Lord's been teaching us much from the life of David. And last Sunday, um, our director of the Neighborhood Fellowship, Andy Herman, preached for us. He did a fantastic job. Uh, Such a good word. And, And Andy led us through an incredibly difficult passage. Uh, last week we looked at 2 Samuel 11, which chronicles the story of, of David falling into sin with Bathsheba. So just before that, we had, we had seen David at his very best. In 2 Samuel 9, David welcomes Mephibosheth to his table. It's a remarkable story of mercy and kindness. And we go from the heights of David at his best to last week, David at his absolute worst. As he sins, taking Bathsheba, and then trying to cover that up. And if, if, you, if you're reading along and paying attention closely, 12 times in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the word sent is used. David sent for Bathsheba. She sent word to him that she was pregnant. Word is then sent to Joab to instruct him to put Uriah on the front lines where he would die. Word is then sent back to David that Uriah the Hethite has been lost in battle. And as you read chapter 11, you can't help but feel the anxiety of it all. David is scrambling. He, he's, he's pulling levers and pushing buttons. He's, he's doing whatever he can to manipulate his way out of trouble. He's using his kingly power in all the wrong ways. And he's willing to bulldoze whoever gets in his way so that his reputation is kept intact. So that his sin remains secret. It's an ugly mess of anxious toil. But at the very end... Of all of that, the last word of 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, is that the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. All of David's desperate attempts to control the narrative cannot hide or conceal his heart from the one who knows all and who sees all. And so chapter 12 begins, the Lord sent Nathan to David. In light of all of David's sending back and forth, here is the definitive action. Now it's God's turn to reveal who actually is in control, who actually pulls the levers. God has not only considered David, but he's about to confront him. In divine love, God is not going to let David get away with his sin. There's an irony here as chapter 12 begins, as we're introduced yet again to to Nathan, who we first met in chapter 7. The name Nathan means gift. The Lord packages a gift for David in the form of the prophet. Now, Nathan likely isn't the gift that David is looking for, but he's the gift David needed. 
Church, don't you know that God often doesn't give us what we want? He loves us too much to do that. No, he gives us what is ultimately best for us. He gives us what we need. And what David needed in this moment was a wake-up call. He needed a confrontation. Friends, divine confrontation is a gift. You might struggle to believe that. Most of us do not like confrontation. In fact, we live in a culture that teaches us to live and let live, to mind your own business. But it is a gracious thing to be confronted about our sin. The most damning thing of all would be for God to simply hand us over to our sin. To, the, the most damning thing of all for David would be for God to just say, David, you, you can quote unquote get away with it. That's the ultimate judgment. That should be a, a shuddering thought for us. For God to just give us into our sin, to let us get away with it. And yet God would be completely just to do that, right? In fact, we could argue that this would be the most just thing for God to do. To just give us over to our sin. To let us have what we want. It would be a fair thing for God to just give us over. But the good news of this passage, the good news of, of this story is that God pursues sinners. And if you are a child of God, you may succeed in unfaithfulness, but God will come after you. It's a gracious thing for the Lord to confront you. It's actually a mark of his faithfulness and his love. And so in this passage, what we're going to see this morning is that the Lord confronts David with a word of correction. He's going to help David see the consequences of his sin, but he's also going to comfort him with the promise of his love and of his forgiveness. So let me pause and let me pray for us as we dive in together. Father, as we, as we look now at your word, this is a hard word. Lord, none of us likes to be confronted in our sin. But God, it is a gracious thing for you to reveal our sin to us, that we might confess it and repent of it, that you might restore us. And so God, help us to receive this word. Help us to hear what your spirit would say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Nathan, we're told in chapter seven, is a prophet. And the role of the prophet was to be a mouthpiece for God. We, we might, when we think of, of, of a prophet, be inclined to, to think more of like a soothsayer, someone who predicts future events. And, and certainly, within the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, there are occasions where uh, the, the, the prophet is given a glimpse into the future. But most often, what was, what was common for the prophet to do was to point the people of God back to the law of God. The, the primary role of the prophet was to remind God's people of the covenant they had entered into with God and, and to remind them of the blessings of obedience, that if they walked in step with Yahweh, that he had promised to bless them and to keep them and, and to also warn them of the dangers of disobedience. And so in, in many ways, the, the prophet in the Old Testament is similar to the preacher in the New Testament. He was Yahweh's mouthpiece. And he was called to declare, thus saith the Lord. 
And that's what Nathan's role is here with David. God sends Nathan to David to say, thus saith the Lord. He sends Nathan to David to be a truth teller, to tell David what he needs to hear. And we catch a glimpse of these two men's relationship in chapter 7 as David imagines that he wants to build a temple for Yahweh. He kind of runs this by Nathan. And at first Nathan says, hey, David, that sounds great. You should go for it until God gives Nathan a word then to say, Nathan, or to David, David, you're not going to build God a house. He's going to build you a house, a dynasty. And and it's not going to be you that builds the temple. But these two men had a relationship. They were more than acquaintances. We, We might call them friends. And so I don't think it's a coincidence here in chapter 12 that it's Nathan that God chooses to go to David and to speak this word of truth to him. Often the way that God confronts us and corrects us is through the prophetic word of a friend. God often speaks to us through the word of a friend, his word through a friend. Christian therapist Rich Plast says that everyone needs one or two people in their life who knows pretty much everything about them, who has permission to tell the truth, and that when they do, you believe them. Everyone needs at least one person in their life who has permission to tell you the truth, and when they tell you, you believe them. Do you have someone like that in your life? Who have you given entrance into the inner chambers of your heart? Who has permission to ask you any question and demand that you tell them the truth? Who has permission to tell you the truth? And when they do, you listen. I wonder if you're willing to be that kind of friend for someone else. Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The only way that we can live healthy lives is through the kind of relational intimacy that allows for faithful wounds. I can remember as a boy going on a camping trip with my dad, and while on the camping trip, I got a splinter in my finger, and the splinter got underneath the surface of my skin where I couldn't, couldn't just pull it out. So my dad did what any good dad would do. He pulled out his Swiss army knife, which wasn't the most pleasant sight to my eyes. Certainly not to my throbbing finger. But to fish out the splinter that was in my finger, he had to gently use his knife to pick at that opening until he could pull out the the splinter with the nice little set of tweezers in his Swiss army knife. He actually had to wound me further to get the splinter out. But I trusted him because I knew he wasn't trying to hurt me. He was healing me. We need friends like that. We need friends who have permission to hurt us in order to heal us. To truly be healthy, we have to open our lives up to the correction of trusted friends. David had Nathan. 
But notice that as Nathan comes to David, that Nathan doesn't start right in on him, right? Nathan doesn't start immediately condemning David. No, he doesn't attack David with blunt words because the goal of gospel correction is not to lambast someone or to lay them bare. It's to lead them to repentance. And especially when we've been deeply hurt, often what we want the other person, what we want for the other person is for them to feel our hurt. We want them to bleed, right? And so we need to be especially careful when we're the one who's been hurt, not to fall prey to to vindictiveness or retribution. No, the goal is gospel correction. It's not to inflict pain, it's to bring healing. And so Nathan, as he comes to David, he doesn't attack David, he does something way more subversive than that. He, he tells a story. And as I read the story this week, I couldn't help but be reminded of so many of the parables of Jesus. This reads just like one of those parables. It's, it's a simple story about a rich man who had lots of sheep, but who needed just one lamb for a dinner he was giving. But instead of going to his own flocks, instead of taking one of the lambs that belonged to him, he goes down the road and steals a lamb from a poor man down the road. And he takes that lamb and he slaughters it and he serves that lamb for supper. And as David listens to this story, he becomes indignant. He's furious. How dare this guy? This man deserves to die. David says he has to pay back four lambs for the one. That's not a random number. David is actually quoting Exodus 22, which stipulates that if someone steals a sheep, they should pay back four. David knows the law, but he's selective in his application of it. He is zealously upset about the sins of someone else, but remarkably silent about his own. David's a hypocrite. Eugene Peterson comments to this. He says, it's both easy and common to let your faith blur into generalized pronouncements of religious indignation. That's what David is doing in this story, listening to his pastor preach a sermon about somebody else and getting all worked up about somebody else's sin. Peterson says that kind of religious response is worthless. I wonder if you've ever been guilty of that. Listening to a sermon and thinking, man, I wish so-and-so were here. They really need to hear this. They could use this word. Maybe I'll share the podcast with them. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself pointing the finger at someone else even while you were actively caught up in your own sin? Sin can be so blinding, can't it? We so easily notice the sins of others while we ignore our own. We trade sins for others that are, that are easier to hide, that are more socially acceptable, that are more respectable sins. We condemn other people while we simultaneously give ourselves a pass. But see, by Nathan telling this story, he's appealing to David's conscience. And what he's doing is he's, he's actually helping David identify his own sin. Using the story, Nathan is essentially holding up a mirror so that David can accuse the person staring back at him. 
David becomes his own judge and jury. And this is what healthy correction does. It simply holds up the mirror of God's word so that someone can see the error of their ways. Church, this is what friendship is all about. We're called to this ministry of mirror holding for one another. Ephesians 4, 15 tells us, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. How do we grow into Christian maturity? How are we gonna become more like Jesus? By speaking the truth in love to one another. Now listen, this is not beating each other up with Bible verses. That's not what this is about. This is not identifying the speck in our neighbor's sin while we have logs protruding from our own. No, this is the gracious work of helping others look through the lens of the gospel to see themselves through the lens of God's word. Nathan holds up the mirror and he says to David, do you recognize this guy? David, do you recognize this guy? You're this man. David, it's you. Look in the mirror, friend. Can't you see that you're the rich man in this story? God anointed you king over Israel. He rescued you from Saul. He gave you a house. He gave you wives. He gave you the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that weren't enough, he would have given you more if you asked. And yet, despite all of this, you killed Uriah the Hittite. You stole the precious wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And then you had him slaughtered to cover your sin. And suddenly the fog evaporates off of the mirror and David sees himself clearly and he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. In a moment, David abandons the religious indignation and the religious talk and he owns his sinfulness. He stops with the excuse making. He stops with the cloaking. There is no pretext. It's just a full, simple admission. And the simplicity of David's confession here, it's not a marker of superficiality. I think it's an indicator of a contrite spirit. David, in this moment, is a broken man. God is working in his heart. And friends, this is the first step out of your sin. It's simply to agree with God. It's to look in the mirror and go, yeah, that's me. I am a sinner. A sure sign that the Spirit is working in your life is when you come to the end of your excuses and your blame shifting and your religiosity and you're able to say, full-throated, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. This, by the way, is what separates David from Saul. If you've been following along in our series, then you know that both men sinned against the Lord. But it's only David who fully owns his sin. When confronted with his guilt, David submits to the accusing word of God. He agrees with what God is saying about him. If you're visiting this morning, Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith and, and you wonder, what does it mean to be a Christian? Listen to me. To be a Christian 
is not to be morally superior to others. Here's the truth. There are many people who are nicer and more morally upright than I am. I say that to my shame, but it's true. To be a Christian is not even to never fall into sin. The Bible is full of David's. But one of the key marks of a genuine follower of God is that he or she is submissive to God's corrective word. A Christian is someone who listens to the convicting voice of Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. When the shepherd speaks, the sheep listen. And so every week we gather for worship and we hear the word preached. And every time that happens, we're faced with a choice. We can either listen for the voice of Jesus and submit to what he says, or we can play the game of religion. Friends, listen, the goal of preaching is not a theological TED talk. That is not what is happening. It's not to walk out with a sense that we've done our religious duty for the week. It's not to see if we agree with what the preacher says. The goal of preaching is for all of us, myself included, to take a long gazing look in the mirror of God's word to see what it reveals. It's to listen for the voice of Jesus and then to respond accordingly. And so we should come in here every week ready to receive God's word with humility and with a willingness to respond accordingly. When God's word confronted David, he let the word correct him. And he confessed his sin. And with his confession comes an assurance of grace. In response to his confession, the prophet Nathan says to David, David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Maybe you've noticed that every time we confess sin together as a church, there's always a word of assurance that follows that confession time. Why do we do that? Because scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we're assured of pardon. We're assured of grace in confession. But maybe you go, well, how does that work? How can God just pardon David's sin? I mean, doesn't the law say in Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death? Isn't that what the law says? Doesn't Leviticus 24 say if a man kills anyone, he must be put to death? David murdered someone. David committed adultery. How does God just go, David, you don't die? David deserved to die. How can Nathan just assure him of grace? I want you to notice two things in the text. One, David will still deal with the consequences of his sin. Although Nathan assures him that he won't die, he also tells David that the sword shall never depart from your house. We've been, we've been journeying through this story together and we've seen for the last several chapters that David, for years, 
has been working toward a place of peace and stability for the kingdom. He spent a lifetime establishing peace and stability. And now he's told that all of that has been forfeited and that what's going to come are two civil wars. Furthermore, he's told that the sexual sin and the murderous violence which, which he engaged in will soon be practiced openly by his sons. What David did in the dark, his sons are going to do in the light. In fact, one commentator says that verses 11 and 12 are actually a guide to the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. As you read on, what you see is exactly what takes, what's, what's said will take place in verses 11 and 12. David's life is torn apart by his sin. And so it's not as if David skates by without any consequences. He's forgiven, but that does not immediately erase the impact of his sinful actions. His sin severely affects the kingdom and it severely affects his household. So listen, do not believe the lie that you can live in sin without consequence, right? We need to discern the difference between forgiveness and consequences. One of the messages that this story is screaming to us is that sin always carries with it consequences. Don't believe that what's done in the dark will stay in the dark. Nothing is concealed that won't be revealed. And nothing is hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. And then worst of all, Nathan says that the child, this child conceived with Bathsheba, will die. The baby conceived by David's sin would die shortly after he's born. David begins to plead to the Lord for him to be spared. But we read that seven days after his birth, the baby passes away. And this leads to a second observation. Maybe you hear that and you go, that's really unfair. This child didn't do anything wrong. It was David who did wrong. And of course you're right. And that's the point of the text. Church, feel the weight of this. Feel the weight of this. David is forgiven, but at great cost. It's as if the child will die in place of David as an innocent substitute. Does that sound familiar? Perhaps you can recall another time later in the scriptures where someone pleads to God for his life to be spared. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And the father says, this is the only way. God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, Romans 8, 32. For God so loved the world that he gave unto death his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
The reason why if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us is because Jesus, the truly innocent son, has suffered the penalty of our sins for us. He has died so that we can be assured the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. For David, this is a promise not only of temporary forgiveness. It's a promise of eternal life. I want you to notice that after David's son passes away, verse 23 says, David says in response to his child's death, I'll go to him. What does David mean? He believes that he will see his son again because his sins have truly been taken away. Isn't that remarkable? In church, we can have that same hope. No matter what we're guilty of, Jesus died so that we can be confident that our sins are forgiven and that death does not win. In Christ, we have the promise of eternal life. In verse 24, we learn that David and Bathsheba eventually conceive another son who they name Solomon. And if you keep reading, you learn that it is Solomon who ascends David's throne. Solomon is the one who builds the temple that God told David his son would build. And Solomon, if you keep reading all the way to the New Testament, is the, is the one through whom Jesus the Messiah comes. See, in the midst of all of David's mess, God still had a plan. Even in the tragedy and the chaos of David's sinfulness, God kept his promises. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And maybe you're here this morning. And if you're honest with yourself, you would say, man, I don't believe that my sin is forgivable. Maybe you believe that the mess you've made is irreparable. I want you to listen. In, in the midst of your mess, God is still on his throne. You can't out sovereign grace. Jesus redeems the worst of our failures. And he came to undo all of the consequences of David's sin and our sin and to set the kingdom of God in order. And see, Jesus, in the end, will make everything okay. As we close, there's one other son I think worth mentioning in this story. We actually don't find it here in 2 Samuel 12, but if, if you flip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 5, we get this amazing little tidbit. David and Bathsheba had other sons and daughters. And one of the other sons that they conceived together was a son who they named Nathan. Isn't that amazing? That in this story of a friend coming to a friend to do a hard thing, to confront him in his sin, to hold up the mirror of God's word to him, that David eventually names one of his sons after that friend. 
It's as if he's saying, Nathan, you saved my life. I am indebted to you for your willingness to speak a hard truth to me. Church, this is a hard work. It is a life-saving work. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let's pray together.